so we finally decided, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to certify organic. We're going to write the big check <laughs> and, um, and do the extra paperwork. And right at that time when we decided that we're going to do this and we were full in, there was, it was when those shipments of grain were coming from Turkey or someplace that started out in Turkey as not certified and then magically became certified when they arrived in the U.S. And the Washington Post started breaking some of the stories about the CAFO dairies around the same time. And all of a sudden we were like, we just decided to do this huge thing and we spent all this money and people are going to think that organic is worthless. Like this just like shot holes in the reputation of organic. Did we make this commitment, this financial and time commitment to this thing that we thought was really, you know, in line with our values. And people are going to be like, organic, organic, you know? organic. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's worthless, you know? And so we we're kind of panicking, actually. And then I think I don't know whether it was an email or something on social media, but all of a sudden I saw something about the Real Organic Project and I was like, this is what we're trying to do. This is the organic that we're talking about. We need something so people know that these are the values that we hold to. This is the kind of farming that we're doing. We're not just, you know, sort of greenwashing organic. Like we're, we're really organic. That's really what we're trying to do. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label, distinguishing organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on pasture. You just heard from Amy Klippenstein of Sidehill Farm in Massachusetts about her decision to get her farm certified with the Real Organic Project. And Amy and Paul were both interviewed uh, by Dave last summer about the challenges that they're facing competing with organic dairy products from large confinement operations, and also about the unique business model that they've adapted on their farm so that they can ensure that they do a great job grazing, but also the marketing side of organic dairy is a challenge. So they've kind of divided and conquered. So please enjoy this interview. I'm very pleased today to be talking with Amy Klippenstein and Paul Lisinski, who are uh, the founders of Side Hill Farm and now the makers of Side Hill Farm yogurt. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. So you all did a tremendous interview several years ago with Lindley in the rain, in the barn, in the dark. Yes. <laughs> so this is our chance to have a take two because you said really wonderful things. So, hello. Um, and, you know, we're just going to have a kind of a free-ranging conversation here. Um, tell me, how did you guys get to farming, to agriculture? My grandparents are, were farmers out in Nebraska, but Mennonite farmers, you know, row crop, corn, sorghum, that sort of thing. Um, certainly no dairy experience in either certainly of our histories. No so that's uh, that was a little shocking to our families and to a lot of our friends when we said, we're going to start a dairy. And most people said, you're insane. Um, and they were right. They were right. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it when that happens. <laughs> 
Um, but we actually, we started out as vegetable farmers. Um, and that was, you know, that came from like our family's interest in food. Paul grew up with his grandparents who were Italian immigrants and had huge gardens, grew a lot of the food for the family. Um, so I think we come more from sort of a gardening tradition in some ways. Um, and the sort of path to dairy was uh, something that came out of um, a desire to be working together. We ran a construction company together for a number of years, and then I started farming, um, growing vegetables, and really wanted Paul to come and work with me, but he was still running the construction company, and at that point he was going overseas and working in China and Mongolia and doing amazing things, and... Um, the only way I could get him to come back and work with me was to agree to start a dairy. <laughs> so it's really his fault. You had a deep desire for cows? I don't know where it came from. Um, I there Before we ever had cows, I found being around cows to be very relaxing. <laughs> there were moments where that, where that continued once we had our own cows. Um, you know, I guess when you're hanging around with other people's cows, the the... If you want to see the volume of work, it's right there, plainly apparent. If you feel like looking the other direction, you can do that too, right? So, um, yeah, so right. actually, I'm I think not we sure could also say, would... you know, we were really involved in homesteading. We were growing a lot of our own food, which we're finally back to again, which is really fun. Um, but the one thing that we weren't producing for ourselves was dairy products. And Paul is a big yogurt fan and a big yogurt eater. And, you know, he's the kind of guy who thinks a quart of yogurt is a single serving container. Um, so he was going through, you know, a quart of yogurt a day. And that was one of the things that we weren't producing ourselves. And so I think that's part of why I agreed to it. <laughs> you know, the other piece is at that time here in Ashfield, there were four farms milking cows is that so, right yeah. and if you wanted to get any of that milk you could buy a block of cabot cheese and there might be a few molecules in there um and so you know we could also see that both with raw milk and with yogurt that there was sort of quite a hole in the local food economy the local food ecosystem or whatever we might call it that huh we could do that <laughs> So. so let me ask you, why would there only be a few molecules from those four farms? Where did their milk go? Right. So the, um, you know, there were four farms milking conventionally and it all got, it all went to Agrimark um, and then became, you know, most of that milk goes into Cabot cheese. Um, so, you know, it would all get blended with milk from here, there and everywhere all around New England. And, um. Well, you so. couldn't go and just buy a gallon of milk from those farms. Like, they were, had a contract with Agrimark, and so it was all going on the truck and getting shipped off to whatever. And so the idea that you could actually enjoy dairy products from this particular farm that's in your town, that there wasn't really a way to do that. So there, that is the paradigm, that all milk gets consolidated and sold to some kind of intermediary and processor and eventually gets packaged as cheese or as a carton of milk mm -hmm. right. or as or made into dry milk dry powder, milk powder. Or, you know and sits in a warehouse somewhere i don't know what happens to dry milk powder <laughs> <laughs> well when there's a when there's a hurricane coming they bring out 50 pound bags of it and stack them up you right, know yeah. <laughs>
handy to have around. <laughs> okay, so when you started to milk, you 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 got a herd. How big a herd was it? <laughs> well, we started with three cows. Yeah. And uh, the day after they arrived, we had four because even though they were supposedly bred for March, one of them calved in September. And we had no idea what to do at that point because we we're like, oh, yeah, we have like six months to figure out how to handle these cows. Well, no, we had a calf the next morning. And um, we had zero infrastructure, just to be clear. Yes. Right. We had some portable electric fencing and a charger. That's what we had <laughs> at that point. <laughs> and we'd had the fencing for maybe a week. We were kind of still figuring out how to work with it. Right. And three cows. And three cows, which were an heirloom breed, uh, Canadians, which are beautiful, beautiful animals. And these particular ones were completely feral and um, had no issues about trying to kill us. <laughs> we bought them very inexpensively from a guy out in Western New York who was breeding them just to make more to try to keep the breed going. Yeah. No handling whatsoever. Yeah. Right. And they had horns. Yes. So pretty soon after that, we bought some more cows from Chase Hill Farm in Warwick, Massachusetts, uh, Normands, which ended up being sort of the backbone breed of our herd. Um, really great cows, dual purpose, true dual purpose, like real dairy cows, real beef cows, not sort of a homestead dual purpose. Um, they are the... Um, uh, camembert is the famous cheese of the Normand breed. And they're also considered to be the best beef in France. So they're actually the leading breed in France. They're the most common breed in France. Yeah. So. so we started out, we went from three to maybe the first year we milked six or seven cows. And then the next year it was 12 cows. And then, then it was to, eventually we were up to, I think the most we ever milked was 45 cows probably at one time. Um, more than that was really sort of beyond the scale of what we wanted to do. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, what was really interesting to about this whole process was like, how can we take these cows and this process of milking them and producing the milk and make a product that is super high quality, that is something that people want to eat? Um, and also, how can we make this process really efficient? Like, we are not so much the kind of people who want to spend the entire day in the barn with the animals. We loved our animals and they were incredibly well cared for and spoiled, definitely. Um, but we can see now that we've split the farm into two and so we've kept the processing and Meadow Sweet Farm now is milking the cows that they're really animal people. Like they want to spend the whole day in the barn with the animals. And we were sort of more, in, more interested in how can we make this really efficient? How can we make this really profitable and do this all sort of within our set of values about how we felt we should be farming? Um, so that's sort of a long way around to the fact that like we didn't want to be milking like a hundred cows. We're not animal people in that way. Yeah. Where did you sell the milk for those 45 cows? <laughs> right. So our first year milking, um, we started out only selling raw milk and we were doing yogurt samples uh, in the kitchen, trying out a lot of different cultures, different processes, etc. Pestering all of our friends and family, forcing them to eat <laughs> yogurt over and over again. We got um, from eBay, back when you actually used to bid on things in an auction in eBay, you know, when they were just getting started, a Hamilton Beach yogurt maker from the 70s, six little glass jars, it was like that burnt orange color, um, and uh, 
we kind of rewired it so that we would have control over the incubation temperature so that we could have a nice consistent process so that we could try different milks, different cultures, you know, and, and figure out, you know, what, what makes sense here? What do we, what do we want to do? Um, so at the beginning, there was, it was handy that it was only a few cows that first year because, of course, uh, the demand for raw milk eventually grew quite a lot. At the beginning, because this was how many years ago? 15, 2006? Um, yeah, the demand was somewhat limited at the beginning. Um, so the next year we started making yogurt. And basically, like, we just sort of grew our herd as the demand for the milk um, increased. So you and, were direct selling the whole time? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And um, so there are two things about that. We, do, we did eventually also start using a distributor, uh, or now a few of them, but the, really at the beginning we were just selling in Western Mass. And in fact, originally it was just Franklin County and Hampshire County, the two counties closest to us here, um, doing all of our own deliveries. And then the raw milk state law in, in Massachusetts is only on the farm. Um, so people you know, people have to come to the farm for that. And, um, um, what was I going to say about this? I what was, was the milk that you were selling, you sold some to stores. Was that pasteurized? We never no. sold any milk. We only ever sold yogurt to stores. Okay. We sold raw milk on the farm, but otherwise it all went into the yogurt. Right. And so Part of what made us able to do what we were doing is the fact that we weren't starting out with 50 or 100 or 500 cows producing this gigantic amount of milk every day so that whatever we could sell, um, you know, through our own processing was just a ridiculously small part of the percentage of the total. So well, why even bother? You know, we have this other huge thing to do. Um, we were able to begin from the point of view of the end product and the demand for the end product, and then increase milk production to meet that, which is a very, very different paradigm. Um, because, as Amy said, nobody starts a dairy farm <laughs> anymore. <laughs> you know, people quit dairy. Nobody starts one. Yeah, they're um, going out of business right and left. Right. right. So, well, the whole, the, the whole model is just defective. It doesn't really work for anybody in the, whole, in the chain. Yeah. So. You broke all the rules. We kind of did. and It's one of the few things we're really good yeah, at. Yeah, really. <laughs> People tell us this all the time. <laughs> um, and, you know, and we can see there are people that we know, you know, friends of ours who are in dairy and saying, well, oh, you know, could I, could I be doing some sort of value-added thing like this? Would this work? And in some cases it would, but I think also what Paul was talking about, I mean, we had a huge advantage in that we could just grow the herd as the demand for the product went up. So, you know, for a while, six cows was great. Then we needed 12. Then we needed 25. And then we needed 45. And, you know, now we have two farms, both milking about 45 cows. Um, and we're buying the milk from those farms. And so, you know, we would be milking 90 at this point in order to meet the demand for the yogurt. We didn't want to milk 90. Um, so, but we're not in a situation, like Paul said, you know, where we have 500 cows worth of milk and like, what are we going to do with this? And, you know, anything that we're not processing ourselves, we have to ship off to someone we have a contract with who's paying us nothing for it. And so we're essentially just throwing it away. And, you know, that was really a huge advantage that we started and could grow into it. And I, that's super challenging for anybody who's already in, valley, in dairy. 
Yeah. There are a few farms in Vermont who have made that model work where they have their processing and then they ship the remainder. Um, and so it can work, but it's hard. I think part of it is that starting with so few cows, like milking three cows or six or 12 or 20 even maybe, um, it takes a lot of time, but it doesn't take up all your time, right? So we still had time for the processing. Um, whereas if you're already running a dairy on a scale that is even viable in terms of like breaking even, <laughs> um, well then you're already busy more hours than you probably should be every week. And so the, the only place that the time and the energy, and energy is a big one, attention, you know, computing power, everything. Um, the only place that's really going to come from is maybe another generation coming up or your neighbor decides they want to make cheese and, you know, you can trust this person and you say, hey, well, why don't we try doing something together? It just, there's, it's just not ever going to come from the people who are already working nonstop um, except when they're asleep, keeping their farm going. So maybe even while they're asleep, <laughs> you know, yeah, trying to solve problems. People are they just work a desperate amount. I I talked to some of the dairy farmers. I remember we had a rally uh, to you know for to protect real organic, uh -huh. and I asked some friends, "Can you come?" It was on a Sunday afternoon for two hours. Oh no, we have to work. This was in the end of October. I thought, oh, my God, you can't take two hours mm -hmm. off on a Sunday mm -hmm. in the end of October. And they couldn't. Right. You know, it's like, who who's going to do the work? Right. So it, it it's a difficult thing that most people who aren't in dairy, even vegetable farmers who work like dogs, don't get it. Just how difficult the economics are. Mm -hmm. It's the economics. Absolutely. The other piece of it is the fact that there are all of these things that have to be done every day. Like on a vegetable farm, yes, there are a lot of things that have to be done every day. And then there are a whole bunch of things that, well, if I don't get to it today, I can do it tomorrow. But it's not that way with animals. Um, and it's every day, 365 days a year. It's not every day for eight or nine months, right? So that was, our big joke was always, someday we're gonna breed a cow that doesn't have to be milked on Sundays. And that will change everything. <laughs> ah. So, yeah, but that's not going to happen. But until that day comes. We didn't ever manage that. Funny thing, huh? Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, so let me ask you. Um, you you've, you've done something amazing because uh, there weren't very many models of how to do it. You, you told me earlier that Jack and Ann Laser at Butterworks were a great help to you. Yeah. Yeah. Could you talk about that? Tremendously so. Um, well, one of the places that um, I sort of first got to decide that I like being around cows was going up there to visit them. Uh, we, we had a mutual friend at one point who said, you know, you just got to go up there and visit those guys. So we did. And we went back a bunch of times mm -hmm. over the years, right? Probably five, six times. And um, they treat their animals really well. And so being in the barn in the winter, we always went in the winter with those really calm, happy cows. Um, cows that are unhappy are completely infuriating because um, they're large, you know. Cows that have everything that they need um, are very calm, basically. They don't want a lot. 
So if they have the three or four things that matter to them, that's it. There's nothing else going on in their minds. They're not like humans thinking about, oh, well, I got all that taken care of. I can get the next thing now, you know? Um, and so, um, so that was one big thing, you know? And then the other interesting piece of it, and we'll get to the part about how they helped us, was that, um, you know, they were so well-known in Vermont. You cross the state line around here, and, um, you know, a, a few people knew of their yogurt, but very few, really. And there was nowhere near the loyalty to them. And we said, hmm, well, um, you know, that could be us. <laughs> so, you know, so from that sort of business point of view. Um, but, yeah, I don't, with, um, there were like, cow questions that we called those guys with over the years mm -hmm. we bought cows from them you know bought hay from them a few times from them. and you know one of the most amazing thing was that like paul said sort of customer loyalty to butterworks really sort of stopped at the vermont state line at that time and also at that time they were really like the demand for their yogurt was outstripping what they could produce on their farm. And at that point, they were not buying milk from other farms. Or just a little bit. Or maybe just a little bit, but... Yeah. They um, didn't really want to get a lot bigger. Right. And so they had more cows in their barn that they really wanted. And so Jack was just gave his blessing for like, you guys go, like, take some pressure off us. Like, start making yogurt and take care of Massachusetts so that we don't have to worry about this and we can get our operation back, calm down to where we want it. Um... And so that was sort of a magical thing to have Jack actually like, you know, sort of give us his blessing to go ahead and take a piece of his market. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's also amazing to hear of a time where demand exceeds supply for a dairy farmer. Right. Because right. uh, everyone just feels like they're drowning in milk now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was demand for yogurt specifically. So this would have been like, 20 to 25 years ago so the late 90s let's say and um that was you know when the interest in local food was really picking up um, just starting yeah just starting but i don't know it just seemed like there was a lot going on then you know and and um i think you know they've been at it for whatever 15 or 20 years already at that point um but now like the growth curve was like this and uh, you know growth is nice as we all know but a curve like that is not you know, unless you're at the beginning and you're, right. and you're really excited to get going, you know, something like this is a lot more just easier to deal with than, you know, so I think that was just where the market was at. Yeah. So let's talk about demand for what you do, for what, what Butterworks does. Is there room for a hundred farms like yours in New England? That's a great question. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there is certainly more room for cheese. Um, I don't know how much more demand there is for yogurt. Um, like our sales are growing, but it's only a few percent a year now. Mind you, we don't really do anything on sales or marketing or anything <laughs> like that anymore. So, you know, we're not that inclined toward growth anymore. So that could be part of it. Um, the, I mean... We're in an interesting time because of COVID. Um, I think everybody experienced that demand for local products appeared to be unlimited for about five or six months there, you know. And now, of course, it's tapered back off. It's tapered back off at a higher level than where it was. Um, I think that we don't quite know yet uh, to what degree people's perspective on their life and their food 
has changed for real and to what degree that was kind of a bubble and over the next couple of years everything's going to kind of percolate back to where it was um i'm inclined to think it's going to be somewhere in between that there are an awful lot of people who have made some changes that they've discovered they kind of like um but so um i think that there is in new england probably too much milk for the demand um, and, but that doesn't mean that there isn't still room, um, for new people in the market who want to make a high quality product that people, um, can relate to. Um, so there's too much bulk milk, um, that has no story to it. Um, and there does still seem to be a market like at any time somebody starts making a new cheese that's really good, they seem to find a market. Um, if somebody makes a new cheese, well, thankfully, I could say we're getting to the point where if somebody makes a new cheese, it's not very good. People don't anymore seem to be buying it just because it's local. Um, so that actually means we're in a kind of a sustainable place um, in, in, you know, in the market where people are sorting based on quality and on other factors, you know. I'm guessing that the vast majority of yogurt that is sold in Vermont and Massachusetts comes from out of state. It comes from Danone mm-hmm. and Dan and that is probably true. You know, all the big multinationals and they put it in containers that look local mm-hmm. and look like it was grown by you two, but I don't think it was. And, um, I think a lot of it comes from very large farms, CAFOs. Sure. So that makes me think that perhaps there is a market, but as you say, we have to tell a story. Mm. We have to tell the true story. Right. Right. Both of what that other milk is, what that other yogurt is, and what yours is. And I think that's a really important point because I think that there are a lot of farmers who are, they farm because... They love what they're doing, but also because they don't necessarily want to be in, have a lot of communication with other people. Like they like working with them by themselves or they want to be able to what they, do what they like to do and they don't want to have to explain it or have anybody else have their fingers in it and tell, sort of telling them, well, you know, if you did this thing, that would be a great marketing thing or they're not interested in marketing. And so I feel like while there probably is space for more dairies to be producing cheese or yogurt and putting it on the market. You have to want to do that. You have to want to engage with the business side and the marketing and the brand development. And I think, you know, we also had the advantage that that was interesting to us. That was fun. Like, you know, I spent a lot of time working with our graphic designer on the packaging and, you know, like, what's the, what's the story we're telling here? What are the, what do we want this to look like? How do we want this to like go out to the public? And that was something that was really sort of added another layer to what we were doing. It wasn't just milking cows and making yogurt. We were also telling the story and, you know, doing fun design work and like, how does this look advertising wise? And, um, and I think it's a, it's not that common with farmers to also be interested in that kind of thing. And I think if you're going to find your niche in the market today, like you have to be interested in that also, um, And I think that also, you know, we can see that now that we've divided the business in half. Um, 
the meadowsweet folks are really interested in taking care of their animals. They're producing, they sell raw milk at the farm shop on the farm. They sell milk to us. They raise meat. They have beef and chickens and turkeys and sheep. And they're not interested in marketing. They are not interested in, you know, processing and they're not interested in marketing. And so that's fine because we'll buy the milk and we can do that. We think that's great. Um, but I think there are a lot of farmers like that, that just, you know, they want to farm and they don't want to do any of the advertising or design or social media or I'll admit social media is completely annoying. But you know. <laughs> um, so I think that's a big thing. I, and it's a big thing that people, it, I feel like it doesn't always get talked about when like government agencies are talking about funding for different projects for value added products and things like that. It's um, it sort of just gets sort of brushed off, but it's it's critical. Well, you probably spend five hours a week just answering phone calls and emails from customers, right? Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, we answer every phone call and email that, that comes from a customer, you know. Yeah, I was just at a farm maybe a week ago, fifth-generation dairy farm. I think they were milking about four or 500 cows, and they knew that to survive the coming 10 years... Really, they ought to sell half the herd and put all the money from that sale into processing and direct sell their milk, maybe make yogurt, cheese. If they knew for economic survival, that's what they should do. They just don't really like dealing with people. And they like dealing with cows. Mm -hmm. And they like dealing with machines. They like equipment. And it was was just interesting. Um, And I know that a lot of people become farmers because they actually aren't very comfortable with other people. Right. <laughs> they like to be able to go out and be alone with the animals or with the fields. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing where you're right. People say, well, why don't you just do this? And for a lot of people, that's like saying, why don't you just fly to the moon? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. And still, somehow, we're losing so many farms. We're losing the people who have those skills and want to be with the animals and want to be with the fields. Mm-hmm. And there doesn't seem to be a place for them in this economic system. So there are a few things going on, especially in conventional dairy. It's a little less so in organic. Um, The consumption of fluid milk in the United States is just tanking. Um, And that is where the bulk of the milk has always gone. So that's the huge supply. That's the biggest chunk of the supply and demand issue right there. Um, But then... The, so the model is that the farms can produce all the milk you want and the processors say, we'll buy it. You know, that's the deal. Um, okay. All well and good, except the farms have no control whatsoever over what they're charging, over what they're getting paid. So imagine a model where you're producing a product, but you have no say in what you're going to sell that product for. Like imagine telling a carpenter that, oh no, you don't set your billing rates. The customer tells you how much they're going to pay you. They'd say, well, what are you talking about? Like, is this the Soviet Union or something? Like, what? <laughs> were we on the moon? Right? But that's the system. And it's been the system for so long that, um, you know, nobody's alive who ever experienced another system. There are some interesting exceptions, like Organic Valley um, when did the last round of quotas come in? Three years ago? Four? Yeah, a little longer. And 
We don't actually know the fine details, but it appears, and I think I've heard that they basically figure they're just going to stick with that because it's working. Now, at first, a lot of the farmers didn't like it. Um, but most of the organic like farmers are pretty decent people, and you know, the, and they could see that, okay, so either we're going to have to all reduce our production, or the most recent farms are going to get kicked out of the co-op because there's too much milk. Well, I don't really want my neighbor getting kicked out, right? Um, and so everybody agreed to it, or most everybody agreed to it, and the rest had no choice. Um, but, like, it's a much better model because Organic Valley can control how much milk they're they are have so they're not having to dump so much on the conventional market for half of what the farmer got paid that allows the price to stay up at still not quite what most people would like to see but um something that is at least above the cost of production you know so it seemed for a while that organic was going to save the small family dairy farm because they were getting paid a price that they could survive on and thrive on. Mm -hmm. Not that long ago. And it seems to me that what's changed is not that people stop buying milk, but that the organic market is being flooded by CAFO milk that's being certified. That's a big piece of it, for sure. It's a big piece. And if you took away that CAFO milk that I think is being illegally certified as organic, they're not meeting the standards of the law. Well put. Yes. Then the price of milk would go up. There would be much less apparently organic milk. It'd be the same amount of real organic milk. And people would pay more for it because they want that. It's actually the milk that they do want when they buy organic. It's the milk that they think that they're buying when they buy organic. You're you're following, you must be, the, the horizon dump of, 89 farms. Mm-hmm. Not not in Massachusetts. Interesting. Massachusetts has gone organic valley, but well, New York. There aren't many organic dairies in Massachusetts That's anyway, right? right? So I mean, it's literally like, five or something. Yeah, less than 10. Yeah. Well, New York's losing 47 farms and Maine, I don't know the numbers, 20% of the organic dairy in Maine, 10% of the organic dairy in Vermont are facing likely bankruptcy in a year Mm -hmm. right what do you have to say about that is this is this like yeah you guys are inefficient so sorry but you have to go or does a company have any obligation towards its suppliers well there are a couple things to say about that um the first one is the one that nobody wants to hear which is Hello, folks. If you look at Organic Valley's business model and you look at Horizon's business model, I don't find it that surprising that one, that Organic Valley is trying to figure out how to structure things so that everybody can remain part of the club and Horizon is saying, hey, it's business, you know. I don't see a big surprise there. I'm not saying that people should have specifically seen this coming, but it's not like it just, fell out of the sky, you know, it's certainly consistent with how, how Horizon has always been run. So, you know, that's the unfortunate first thing that I think. Um, now, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, for sure, um, if, 
we all would like to think that companies should have some element of social responsibility and should take care of their suppliers and that. Um, as long as, as you said, um, what's effectively CAFO milk is certifiable as organic, um, it can be produced less expensively. And so should a processor be buying that and dumping um, farms who are doing a better job? Well, no, but will they? Well, it depends on who the, who the processor is, right? It seems so. that if all the processors, not the private labels, not the store labels, but the brands, Horizon, Organic Valley, Stonyfield, got together and said, this must stop, mm. the world will change. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, it would change in a hurry. So. Or if customers knew what was actually happening, like what they, the image in their mind of organic milk, when they go and reach for a container of milk on the shelf in the grocery store, in fact, if they knew that that's not necessarily what they're getting, that they're getting CAFO milk, that they're getting organic milk, whether customers would say, hey, wait a minute, this isn't what I want to buy. Like, this is not the, like, cows grazing in the green pasture milk that I want to buy. I'm not going to buy this. I'm going to buy from somebody who is doing that. And, you know, so obviously labeling systems like Real Organic have a huge part to play in that. The question is, how do we get the education to happen so that people do realize that what they think they're buying is not actually what they're buying? It's, it's a huge hill to climb because, of course, the corporations that are selling the CAFO milk have really smart, clever people marketing it and telling other stories. Right. Not, not honest stories, but right. other stories. Right. Well, and it's a very profitable thing to do, right? It's a very profitable. I mean, they have to keep their shareholders happy, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We all know how it works. Yeah. So um, it's an almost inevitable outcome of our system where the farmers, who are the primary producers and the processors, are essentially in opposition. We used to subscribe to this trade journal called Dairy Foods Magazine. It's a trade journal of the dairy processing industry. And boy, when the milk price would go up, you should hear the whining in the pages of Dairy Foods Magazine. Because, I mean, their margins are not gigantically fat either, right? And so, you know, when the, when the especially the conventional price is always, you know, when it would get up, to a price where the farmers were actually making a little money and starting to pay some of their back debts for a while and being able to put on new roofs and things, um, it was taking a serious chunk out of the processor's business model. So essentially, the two groups are in opposition. Um, it's a lousy, broken system, basically. Um, so I remember we were at one point talking to a farm uh, or a retired conventional farmer around here i think we were just looking for a place to store some yogurt packaging and um and he basically said he had stopped two years before and he said basically if we were making any money somebody else was losing it meant the price of grain was maybe down so that meant the grain farmers were you know they just worked all year for nothing or he said you know 
that was just the way it was, always being a conventional dairy farmer. If I'm winning, somebody else was losing. Um, That is a lousy system, right? So, I mean, because nobody in that chain is getting rich. We're not talking about a situation where there's some clown somewhere with a cigar who's sucking, you know, everything out of the system and everybody else is left with a few pennies. There's just not enough to go around to begin with. And so, you know, one year some person gets enough, another year somebody else gets enough. Just enough so everybody all still stays in it until finally the math starts hollering loud enough or the knees or, or, <laughs> or something. And everybody, and so, okay. Now, it was suggested to me by a dairy farmer that, in fact, Danone is doing just fine. Oh, I'm sure they're doing fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. They're making good money. They probably are. I get, I, what I was referring to was all the other people in the, the chain. Right, like, the you know, the, like dairy chemical suppliers and the vets and the, you know, hoof trimmers and the grain dealers and, you know. Danone has to be doing fine because they're in a whole different economy. If they weren't, they would get bought up by a hedge fund, chopped up into little pieces and sold off for bits. Like, so they're, what they need to be able to keep going is not on the same scale of profitability as what a farm needs to keep going. I'm not um, making excuses for them. I'm just saying that's how it works, whether we like it or not, right? So, um, yeah, so no doubt they're doing just fine. There was an interesting thing where Danone became a B Corp. That means Mm. a benefit corp for, for the public benefit. And they moved from the single bottom line of profit to the triple bottom line of profit and environmental profit and environmental welfare and social welfare for their suppliers, for their customers. It's a very idealistic notion if it's, if it's true, if it's, an, if it's meant to be true. And they were rated very high. And they actually had a CEO who I think believed it, right? Emmanuel Faber. Right. But he's out now, right? He got fired in January. Yeah. And look at that. What was it? Six months later, they announced they're dropping 89 farms. And I thought, I, I really wondered when I, when I heard about Danone becoming a B Corp, whether or not it was going to be real. I thought, can a, can a, a publicly held corporation do that? And I'm thinking perhaps not. And again, as you say, well, that's just how the system works. Yeah. Well, look. Let's talk about values for a minute. You mentioned that you came into farming with particular values and you wanted to make sure that the farm embraced those values, represented those values, that you could live a life of value according to what you what you believed in. What are those values? Is it um, too embarrassing to no. talk? <laughs> <laughs> and how poorly we've done at them, you mean? <laughs> no. That's not what I mean. <laughs> Um, I think the value that really drives, um, well, we have what we call a set of core values. And if we're good, we're going to be able to pull them up right now. Go for it. You start in and I'll try to plug any holes. Yeah, I know. Um, uh, One of our values is to have fun while we're doing what we're doing. And that has, you know, that reaches all the way from, you know, having fun being around the animals to having fun making yogurt to, you know, doing things with our employees outside of work. Um, so 
you know, once things are not fun, then we know we need to make some changes. And we feel like having fun is a really healthy thing to do for everybody who's involved. Um, so I should be clear. We've not always succeeded it. Right, right. yes. <laughs> um, there have been some lean periods that were a lot of fun for everybody. But there have also been lots of times where we and other people were having a really good time, you know. Right. Um, I think the one that probably drives the most decisions that we make is about health. And I think that has is health in the very, with a, you know, health with a capital H, a very broad view of health. And that really extended from, you know, the health of our soils and the health of our animals and the plants that they are eating and the health of ourselves and our staff and our customers who are eating the yogurt. And so just all the way down the line from the little microbes in the soil all the way to the person who's scooping the yogurt out and feeding it to their kid at breakfast. Um, that is really important to us that we know that we are doing our best to support the health of all of those systems. And um, because that brings into play all of the sort of organic principles and yeah. Anything to add to that? <laughs> that was good. Um, one of the things that I, a little mantra that I keep in my head all the time um, is there are three components. One is, the first is all quality all the time. Now, mind you, quality has to be balanced with efficiency. Otherwise, you'd go out of business. But that's okay, because we both enjoy efficiency. And, um, so all quality all the time. Have fun most of the time. And um, never, ever, ever stab anybody in the back. We have had to stab people in the front, which is not <laughs> a lot of fun. Right? You know, firing people. There's just a lot of stuff. Um, you know, calling people up and saying, hey, you haven't paid in three months. Like, you know, hello. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's not any fun. But we really... It can't be in the back, you know. You got to be able to sleep at night, <laughs> and um, I don't know. That's kind of been our little. We try to stick, try to keep that, <laughs> and then things seem to work okay. Because as a small business, like you know, really quality is what we have in the marketplace. Um, if you, it seems like if you start to veer from that, then I don't know. I mean then you're finished, right? Then you're trying to, then you're into just like cranking out volume. And um, that doesn't sound like any fun. So the, um, then you're back to what conventional dairy is. Yeah. So, um, so your, your values are um, awesome. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so, so beautifully said and extremely radical in our time and place, extremely radical. Um, the idea that you should actually enjoy your work and that it should be healthy for all concerned is, is a radical idea. Uh, Unfortunately, in our case, the logical endpoint to that way of thinking was that we can't continue running both the farm and the creamery. Um, like on two levels, there were times when we were fully staffed um, where there were brief periods where it was great. Um, but generally, but then as soon as, you know, one employee would be down or whatever, we, I mean, I would be both be back to working two full-time jobs all the time, which is so, you know, one too many or one and a half, you know, whatever, half too many anyway. Um, and then the inevitable effect of that was we would start to be a lot less fun to be around. <laughs> um, other employees would, start having a 
cover too much, um, either because we asked them to or just proactively. And sort of like, you know, they would just be all these burrs in the gears of the workings of things. And so we eventually realized that even though we got into this in order to farm, like the processing was supposed to be a way to produce a product so that we could farm the way we wanted to, more or less, that, um, I don't know, you know, we just, it's not, we can't keep working 80 or 100 hours a week forever. Um, And, you know, it's just not fun at that rate. And also your body eventually says, you know, hello, brain. (laughs) Uh, In the end, you're not in charge here, you know. (laughs) And so, um, yeah. Um, And so that's, it's, that's actually really in the end why we decided, okay, um, we, I think we can make it, or we think we can make it where we can pay enough for milk that somebody else can be producing the milk um, and, you know, make a living um, and not make a gigantic living, but make a family living um, and have a secure place to sell their milk. Um, And we can focus on our product and treating the people who produce it with the kind of dignity and respect that they reserve, the respect that they deserve, um, and treat our customers with the dignity and respect that they deserve, and um, not run ourselves into the ground in the process. Um, so it's ironic, but right. Well, we could also see that there were basically no opportunities for young people to start in dairy. Like if you were not inheriting a farm from your family um you know there there were no nobody was offering contracts even you know organic valley and horizon there were just no contracts out there so the idea that you wanted to like start your own dairy like there was just no way that a young person could do that um even if they had the capital there was nobody who was going to buy the milk and so we realized that we could create that opportunity we could take what we had done and give this opportunity to a young family and let them get started. Um, in fact, you know, the family who bought the farm, they were farming already and they came with, you know, all kinds of experience milking and with animals and things like that. So it wasn't like they were starting from scratch. They knew what they were doing. Um, but they were also trying to farm in a place where there was no market. And so they were producing all of this beautiful organic food and people were saying, now, why wouldn't I just go buy this at Stop and Shop? Like, why should I buy this from you? And so we felt like we could really offer the opportunity to, like, have a secure market for the milk, have them also have, you know, come to this place in Western Massachusetts where people are excited about local food and people will be excited to buy their meat and their eggs as well. Um, Whereas we probably weren't going to find somebody to take over the processing side and pay us the price that we wanted for milk. Um, So by keeping the processing, we could sort of continue with our value system of, you know, making sure that somebody else had a healthy opportunity to make a living in farming. And then also there's this thing called the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they don't tell farmers about this. So we're just going to (laughs) like break the secret. We get two. Sometimes three. Sometimes three. Yeah, they don't tell anybody about that, but it's amazing.
So, Amy, why shouldn't somebody just go to Stop and Shop and buy the house brand? Why should they try and find a different source for the milk? Honestly. Honestly? Yeah. Because I feel like the way that that milk is being produced is part of this problem, our larger problem with destruction of the planet that we live on, that it's contributing to climate change and it's contributing to people's health and, you know, and our Western culture, people are not that healthy anymore. And um, that it is closing doors for young farmers who want to produce food. And we have to have young farmers continuing to take over and it tastes a lot better. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, I think those are a few reasons. Um, imagine that you ate Thanksgiving dinner 365 days a year. You really didn't move around much to speak of. Um, and your metabolic processes, in many cases, you were fed hormones to crank up um, your metabolic processes. Now, now, humans don't really have a product the way cows do. I'm trying to come up with an analogy here. But um, conventional cows basically live a short life in a perpetual state of not very good health. Um, and stress, really. And stress. And so the idea then that the milk that that cow produces is, oh, well, basically the same. It's preposterous. It's just a completely absurd idea. Um, you know. Uh, that stress is going to get expressed in the milk in some way in terms of, you know, at the very least it's going to, has to be nutritionally inferior but there are so many things that we don't know too about like how bodily processes work but it seems to me that if like the animal that produces the milk is stressed that's coming out in the milk and then you're ingesting that it's inevitable that it's impossible that it wouldn't um you know uh conventional milk that doesn't have traces of um pesticides and or herbicides in it it doesn't exist um, they can't ever find it when they, you know, every now and then there'll be one of these sites. Sometimes it shows up in organic milk too, not always, but it's always there in the conventional milk. Well, of course it is. Um, you know, the, what goes in comes out. Where else is it going to go? <laughs> it doesn't go off into the ether. Um, but the thing is, like with many things, you know, if you're walking down the aisle in your supermarket of choice, um, there's no reason why you have to think about this. Just like um, there are people starving to death on this planet right now, and we're not sitting here at this moment thinking about that, right? I, there are people starving to death. Like, how, how can we just be sitting here having a nice conversation on a beautiful afternoon? That's not okay. Um, one could very reasonably say that, and yet here we are, right? And so it's it's perfectly understandable that people walk down the aisle in a supermarket and select this product that is less expensive um, because there is an alarm bell going off in their mind saying, well, yeah, it's less expensive and it's less expensive for a reason. Um, and, you know, and there's a reason I drive a decent car instead of the cheapest one I could get. And we all know what that is because it works better. <laughs> it gets you where you want to go instead of only getting you halfway. And, um, 
but people don't, I mean, a lot of people are making that connection about their food more and more. Um, but a lot of people still don't, you know, the bulk of people still don't. Um, and so there are, um, it's like, I think of our food system as, um, it's sort of like, um, you know, it's all links in a chain, right? And they are just as rusted up and stuck as they could possibly be. There's like no flexibility and health in that, in that chain. But if you're all the way at the end, um, you don't really know that, you know, unless you want to. Um, so. So could we, as we, as we come to the end, could we talk a little bit about the Real Organic Project? What that means to you? Do you think it's important? And if so, why? What's the possibility here? Yeah. Um, it's, we might have talked about this in the interview with Lindley, but we actually, for years, were not certified organic. Um, everything that we did was certifiable, but um, certifying organic is expensive. And we were selling our product locally enough in the beginning that pretty much everybody who bought Side Hill Farm yogurt had come to the farm, knew us personally, you know, maybe we knew them by name. Um, and so we felt like that, that indicator um, the certificate that the certification offered was not really necessary. People knew what we were doing. People could come and drop by and see, walk into the barn and see what was going on. Um, but as we grew and started to sell farther and farther away, when we were selling into Boston markets, we realized that, you know, people need something to be able to make a decision by. They need to like be able to look at a product and say, oh, I'm going to choose this one because of something that is on the label. And so we finally decided, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to certify organic. We're going to write the big check <laughs> and, um, and do the extra paperwork. And right at that time when we decided that we're going to do this and we were full in, there was, it was when those shipments of grain were coming from Turkey or someplace that started out in Turkey as not certified and then magically became certified when they arrived in the U.S. And... The Washington Post started breaking some of the stories about the CAFO dairies around the same time. And all of a sudden we were like, we just decided to do this huge thing and we spent all this money and people are going to think that organic is worthless. Like this just like shot holes in the reputation of organic. Did we make this commitment, this financial and time commitment to this thing that we thought was really, you know, in line with our values and people are going to be like organic, organic, you know? organic. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's worthless, you know? And so we we're kind of panicking actually. And then I think, I don't know whether it was an email or something on social media, but all of a sudden I saw something about the real organic project. And I was like, this is what we're trying to do. This is the organic that we're talking about. We need something so people know that these are the values that we hold to. This is the kind of farming that we're doing. We're not just, you know, sort of greenwashing organic. Like, we're, we're really organic. That's really what we're trying to do. And so it was all just at, you know, the perfect timing that everything's just sort of happened boom, boom, boom. And we're like, this is what, this is what we want to have on our label. This is what we want to, you know, say. This is what we're doing. 
because even if even if people don't even if they're not excited about it like this is really important to us <laughs> that you know that we're doing things by these standards and it's interesting it's it's taken a while but well we've had the real organic label on our packaging for two years maybe? two years probably now and um now we're starting to get feedback where people are like, oh, I saw the newsletter or I listened to the podcast and, you know, I'm so excited to see this on your label. Like nobody else has this on their label. You know, I'm going to support your product. And uh, that feels really good that people are really getting it. So something we could say about this is the fact that there is so much corporate organic now. Um, in a way, it's a marker of success, right? Um, that um, there's enough interest in organic food, and not just in the food, but the, the whole organic production system, um, everything from the ground up, um, that the bigger players in the food industry have, are saying, huh, we gotta get in on this. I mean, that's been going on for a while now. Um, but that really means that there's a lot of positive there. I mean, they're not stupid. And um, they may be, they're not stupid. And so, okay, things have life cycles, you know, it's just the way it works. So organic's gotten bigger. It's kind of time for some people to, you know, say, yeah, okay, it's gotten bigger. And part of the way it's gotten bigger is legit. And part of the way it's gotten bigger is, you know, it's like when the stock market gets blown up by speculation, it's gotten bigger because there's a lot of stuff in that bubble now that is have qualified as organic 15 years ago under what the standards were at the outset or what they were before the feds got involved for most of the certifiers and so well, maybe you might want to kind of think about something else or something also um and so that's why we're really excited about the real organic project you know the um the language it's pretty clear um you know it's the opposite of, um, say, defund the police, which apparently isn't supposed to mean what it sounds like it means because nobody's really for that, right? We kind of need police. But no, that's not what it means. You know, it means these other set of things. Well, that's a stupid... What did you name it that for then? You know, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, call it what it's supposed to be. The Real Organic Project, it is straightforward language. Um, it really... Anybody who reads those words... And pauses for half a second, says, wait, wait, so the other stuff that's not this isn't actually real organic? What does that mean? Right? So it poses an excellent question. Right. Uh, or they look at something and say, oh, well, this is organic. Oh, but this is real organic. Right. I want the real organic. Yeah. So, I mean, it's actually, it's, um, it's not milk toast. It's, you know, it, it's definitely the, the, the language um, is standing up a bit for, without being obnoxious about it, um, but it's not mealy-mouthed language at all. It's pretty firm. Um, and so I think I like that about it, you know? Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh -huh. Amy and Paul... It's a beautiful place to stop. Thank you so much. It's really been a lot of fun for me talking with you today. Well, thank you for everything that you've done for this. Thank you. Yeah.
Thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a rating and review. A video version of this interview is found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 69. Please join us next time when our guest is David Bronner of Dr. Bronner Soap. He's a champion of both real organic and regenerative organic certification practices and a leader in the fight to label GMOs. To support this podcast and our certified farms, become a recurring donor at realorganicproject.org and get the benefits of being a real friend, including our book club, where you can ask our favorite authors your questions. See you next time.